uh, we have to bring us uh, to the forefront on this, <clears throat> Her Excellency uh, Dina Kula. She is the ambassador of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan to the United States uh, of America. Ambassador Kawa has been her country's chief uh, representative on the diplomatic front uh, to the United States for the last four years and four months. when <clears throat> She presented her credentials in June of um, uh, 2016, straight through from then to the present. Uh, before that, she was Jordan's permanent representative to the United Nations in New York. And she is the first Arab woman ever to have presided over the United Nations Security Council. Uh, council is comprised of uh, 15 uh, countries, five of them permanent, of which the United States is one of the uh, five, the other four being France, Great Britain, China, and, and Russia. And the other fifth, uh, 10 countries that make up the total of 15 are uh, without a veto such as the permanent five have, uh, but, and they rotate. Uh, but the, the president of the Security Council comes from one of those uh, 15 countries that meet, collaborate, choreograph, concert their actions to try to advance the causes of peace and prevent uh, the causes of war. Now, Her, her Excellency, during her time uh, with the United Nations and elsewhere, because before uh, she was Jordan's ambassador to France uh, for more than a decade, and in that capacity dealing with UNESCO, <clears throat> the United Nations uh, educational uh, institution that deals with social and cultural affairs. And during that period, of course, she had to deal with matters pertaining to migrants, to refugees. And these are issues of enormous importance to the United States and virtually every uh, country in the world. Uh, every country speaks of being compassionate about uh, refugees and migrants, people who've been torn from their ancestral homelands and people who have been spirited out of their country and to another country, as happened when the United States invaded Iraq in March 19, 2003. Uh, 1.3 million immediately went to Syria and several hundred thousand went to Jordan. And in, each, in every case, none of them with a visa. Ponder the implications of that. Uh, everyone coming into the United States has to have a visa. Uh, but family is family. Kinfolk is kinfolk. One's clan, one's sense of justice, one's sense of compassion and passion for the less fortunate came into play that with Jordan at the tip of the spear, uh, which already <clears throat> has had more experience than any other single Arab country and dealing with issues pertaining to refugees, starting with the first wave of Palestinian refugees to Jordan uh, after and during the 1948-49 first Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. Then again in 1967, and then uh, yet again 
uh, since the various Palestinian uprisings against the illegal, unjust, uh, and violation of the United Nations Security Council's charter uh, having to do uh, with Palestine. So Her Excellency uh, brings more than just diplomatic credentials to the table. She's a graduate of Mills College in Oakland, California. Uh, for her undergraduate degree, Mills College is where we've had a number of programs over the year. It's one of the most outstanding women's centric, although men now can attend it, uh, universities or institutions of higher education have ever been privileged uh, to visit and to have programs with. Uh, perhaps uh, Her Excellency had something to do with the outstanding sterling quality of the women students and graduates uh, there. Uh, she also has a graduate degree from Columbia University. Uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Her Excellency Dina Kawar, uh, one of the most outstanding diplomats ever to grace the stage, representing a key American Arab friend, Arab ally, Arab partner, Madam Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for all your kind remarks. I'm really touched and, and uh, privileged to be with you and privileged to um, present our great general today. Um, so allow me to say a few words first on our bilateral relations and to address the, all the excellencies and guests and ladies and gentlemen who are with us today. Um, and I would like to also thank the National Council on US-Arab Relations for hosting such a timely and important conference. And uh, I, wouldn't, I would be amiss not to mention Pat also for uh, helping in uh, organizing this. I have had, I have the honor to introduce our speaker this morning, General Kenneth McKenzie. General, congratulations on completing a year and a half uh, as commander of CENTCOM and what a year and a half they have been throughout this year. You have led the great men and women of CENTCOM through an unprecedented global pandemic, ensuring the safety of the troops while also working tirelessly to ensure the region and the world are more secure and, and peaceful. For that, we thank you. And we know the challenges that come with the pandemic and the army. Even before the pandemic, a little over a year ago, you were the operational commander leading the mission, which successfully resulted in neutralizing Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, also another win, one of the many victories in a, in a war uh, to which Jordan participates and uh, against Daesh among many other countries in the region. And we know the difficulty of that. So General McKenzie can be the first to tell us that working on counterterrorism requires constant vigilance and coordination. We have had the pleasure of hosting you, General, in Jordan on occasion. And we proudly host hundreds of US service uh, members which assist in training local forces and work alongside them to counter violent extremism and terrorism. Currently, while groups such as Daesh seek to take advantage of COVID, 19, our strong partnership has allowed us to be ahead of the curve. Our troops remain focused, training shoulder to shoulder on a broad range of issues. A few weeks ago, for example, US Army soldiers and experts in the Jordanian Royal Medical Services completed an exchange focused on sharing COVID-19 emergency responses. 
Some months ago, before that, U.S. Army soldiers certified 31 Jordanian Armed Forces officers who had successfully completed the Jordan Operational Engagement Program, one of the largest training programs funded by the U.S. Department of Defense. In fact, our uh, attache military department is as big as our embassy, and this is to show how uh, much importance we put on our cooperation uh, on military issues. Uh, we have also cooperated in another critical area, a plan for refugees displaced by the Syrian civil war. And Dr. Anthony, you mentioned a few hundred thousands. In fact, the census go to 1.3 million between those who are registered around 630,000 uh, with um, the UN, but there are uh, the numbers of, of Syrian who came to Jordan and have stayed just about 1.3, which is almost 10% of our population, not to mention the other uh, refugee status uh, who are in Jordan, and that comes up to 20% of our population. I know that um, for CENTCOM, this has been a high priority to help us with the refugee issue, and it remains one of Jordan's highest priorities while we continue to host uh, that much number of Syrian brothers and sisters displaced by the war. Since the beginning, His Majesty had directed the government to keep the borders open and to share our resources. It has put pressure on our already strained sectors, as you mentioned, Dr. Anthony. We know that mitigating this humanitarian crisis is of utmost importance to the region's stability and to the future generations of Syrians who are in Jordan. Never forget that Right now, there's a whole new generation that is growing up in Jordan. General McKenzie, thank you for having been a great friend to Jordan. We have been and would remain a rock solid partner to the United States and an anchor of stability and security in the region. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce our speaker of this morning, though he does not need to be introduced that we know, but um, a few words just to um, before giving him uh, the floor, General Kenneth McKenzie, who is a native of Birmingham, Alabama, a state I have not yet visited. It was on my bucket list for this year, but maybe it will go for next year. He has had a distinguished career, both as a field commander and as a military thinker and planner. He has led Marine Expeditionary Units in Afghanistan and Iraq, and has held senior strategy and planning positions, both in Central Command and in the Pentagon. He has served as the commander of CENTCOM since March 2019. Without further ado, allow me to conclude with these words from His Majesty King Abdullah, who often remarks our chances of success increased exponentially when we work together. General, you have the highest regards and esteem of His Majesty, who is looking forward for your next visit to Jordan. Thank you, and please join me in welcoming General McKenzie. The floor That's is true. yours. Ambassador Kaur, thank you for that kind introduction. And, and uh, I deeply appreciate the close relationship our countries and particularly our militaries have. I think I speak for many in the United States, Jordan, and across the Middle East. We're actually fortunate your curiosity about the world turned you away from a degree in biology and toward international relations. I think we all benefit by that decision. Um, Dr. Anthony, uh, distinguished guests and friends of the council, thank you for inviting me to speak today at the 29th annual United States Arab Policy Conference. I applaud this organization for sponsoring the conference in a virtual format this year. It would have been easy to cancel it altogether due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but this is a crucial time in history, especially across the Middle East, 
and continuing the discussions and broadening our collective understanding of the challenges and opportunities that surround us all help us plot a meaningful way forward for everyone. Last year, when I addressed this audience in person, I spoke about the implementation of the United States National Defense Strategy, what it meant to global security and the potential impacts it might have on our posture in the Middle East, specifically in the United States Central, Com Central Command area of responsibility. I also spoke at length about why CENTCOM needed to remain engaged with our partners in the Middle East in support of the National Defense Strategy. Today, I'd like to pick up where I left off a year ago, provide some context on key issues, and give you an update on United States military posture in the region. Now, I'm gonna start by highlighting what I believe are two of the top interests from the United States national security standpoint, maintaining stability in the region and eliminating the threat of terrorism against our homeland, as well as threats to our friends and allies. First, let's turn our attention to the issue of maintaining stability. Well, there was once a time the argument used to be that the only reason the United States was in the Middle East was because we needed the oil. If you look at the facts today, the United States has significantly reduced its dependence on Middle East oil. In fact, we've become a net exporter. While we have reduced our dependence on Middle East oil, there's no doubt that the price of oil is dependent on a secure global supply. And since more than a third of the world's sea-traded oil transits the Strait of Hormuz every day, it's in the world's interest, not just the United States, to ensure that freedom of navigation is maintained and that oil and other commerce can move freely throughout the region to sustain this healthy and necessary global cycle of production, trade, and consumption. This cycle is absolutely critical to maintaining economic and political stability in the Middle East, but there is and has been a long-standing threat to the stability and it emanates from Iran. For more than 40 years, the Iranian regime has defied international norms by conducting malign activities, which destabilize not only its neighbors in the region, but global security and commerce as well, all for its own hegemonic purposes. This is not just opinion, it is observable fact. Impartially documented in the UN Secretary General's latest report on implementing Security Council Resolution 2231. That report found that Iran continues to use its arsenal of conventional weapons to destabilize the Middle East and foment sectarian violence and terrorism across the region. For decades, the Iranian regime has funded and supported terrorism and terrorist organizations. Today, it is actively propping up the murderous Assad regime, providing advanced weapons to the Houthis in Yemen in a proxy war against Saudi Arabia. It has launched direct and indirect attacks on international oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, and it conducted a remarkably brazen state-on-state -state attack on the Aramco refineries in Saudi Arabia. I noted all of these. I noted all of these destabilizing actions by Iran when I spoke with you last year, and not only have they continued, but they've increased in scope and severity. Shortly after I spoke with this group last November, Iran launched a ballistic missile attack against coalition bases in Erbil and Al-Assad, Iraq. And over the past year, Iranian-aligned proxies in Iraq have conducted more than 50 rocket attacks on coalition bases, as well as our embassy in Baghdad, and more than 90 attacks on coalition logistics convoys. In short, Iran is using Iraq as its proxy battleground against the United States, with Iran's ultimate objective being to eject the United States and our forces from Iraq and the broader Middle East. And unfortunately, Iran continues these activities to the detriment of its own people. Over time, the Iranian regime has spent and continues to spend a great portion of the country's wealth and prosperity on instruments of instability and on proxies. 
Indeed, even during the coronavirus pandemic, the Iranian regime has gone to great lengths to ensure its core military capabilities remain intact while the Iranian people suffer some of the worst COVID conditions in the world, which brings us up to today. Right now, we're in a period of what I call contested deterrence with Iran. Let me explain what I mean by the term contested deterrence. As most of you know, the United States developed a whole of government approach led by the Department of State that employs diplomatic and economic means to convince the Iranian regime to do a variety of things, renounce its nuclear ambition, cease work on ballistic missile production, and cease exporting terror. That United States approach is known as the maximum pressure campaign. Now, it's very important to note there's no military component to the maximum pressure campaign. There's none. It is strictly a diplomatic and an economic approach. But Iran's lack of effective diplomatic or economic levers to counter the United States maximum pressure campaign has caused it to pursue overt and covert, or stated otherwise, direct or indirect, military action against the United States and our partners to counter a diplomatic and economic pressure. The Iranian regime's strategy seeks to undermine international and regional support for United States policies with attacks and threats against the United States interests and those of our partners and allies, many of those attacks I mentioned previously. Our presence in the region sends a clear and unambiguous signal of our capabilities and most importantly, the will to defend partners and United States national interests. This exemplifies the concept of deterrence, which is defined as the diplomatic and political construct obtained from the effect demonstrated capabilities have on the mind of a potential opponent. Today, I believe Iran has been largely deterred because the regime now understands we possess both the capability and the will to respond. And while we have clearly and repeatedly stated we do not want a war with Iran, and I will state that again today, the regime knows that we can bring significant forces to bear should we be push, pushed into that position. And while it's possible that Iran could control the early steps of escalation in those circumstances, it is also abundantly clear who would control the final steps of that escalation. This brings me full circle to my point about deterrence. I believe the Iranian regime recognizes if they get into an escalatory spiral with the United States, it will not end well for them because we have demonstrated the will to act forcefully, if necessary, to safeguard our interests. And so that's why we've seen a recent decline in these tensions at sea and attacks against us in Iraq and in other places. Let me be clear, though, while periods of decreased tension may provide the illusion of a return to normalcy, there is no question of the Iranian regime's desire to continue malign operations that threaten lives, disrupt the internal matters of sovereign nations, and threaten freedom of navigation, regional commerce, global energy supplies, and the global economy. Perhaps most important, though, is the regime's aspirational goal to eject the United States from Iraq. One of the reasons the Iranian regime paused its attacks against us was based on the hope that we would be asked to leave Iraq through the government of Iraq's political processes. And despite intense pressure from Iran's supporters and allies in Iraq, the government of Iraq has clearly indicated it wants to maintain its partnership with the United States and coalition forces as we continue and finish the fight against ISIS. Because the government of Iraq knows, as I know, that ISIS continues to pose a real threat. While ISIS no longer controls territory, a recent estimate by the United Nations reported as many as 10,000 ISIS fighters still remain in Iraq and Syria, and they still have the capability to carry out attacks and sow instability and fear in the country. I believe the strategic dialogue between the United States and Iraq earlier this summer helped us develop a mutual understanding and vision for the future of Iraq and how we can help Iraq's leaders achieve that vision. 
And this really leads into the second point of interest I spoke of at the outset, eliminating the threat of terrorism against our homeland and also against our friends and allies. We're all familiar with the terrorist attacks on the United States in 2001. But even before that, attacks emanated from this region against the United States homeland. Over the past decade, there has been a substantial decline in the number and severity of these types of attacks. That's the result of relentless pressure. That's the result of unceasing overwatch. And it's the result of a lot of activities and efforts by the men and women of United States Central Command, our national capabilities, and those of our partners and allies. I will tell you in the fight against ISIS, the Iraqi security forces, also known as the ISF, have made great strides. And that is due in large part to the global ISIS coalition's investment in training and equipping thousands of troops in Iraq and Syria, with many of those units now acting independently, with coalition forces providing only advisory and enabling support. In fact, the progress of the Iraqi security forces have allowed the United States to reduce force posture in Iraq. We have closed several bases and turned them over to Iraqi control, and we're moving forward with the president's decision to reduce our forces in Iraq to 2,500. Given ISIS's demonstrated tenacity and ability to reconstitute, we will retain a vigilant focus on the de-ISIS mission, understanding that territorial defeat of ISIS does not mean the organization's complete elimination. ISIS is a learning, adaptable, and committed violent extremist organization. It has, to a large degree, gone to ground with the goals of first, maintaining a global cyber presence, and second, of building and retaining a small cellular structure which allows ISIS to carry out local attacks. Because its ultimate aspiration is to reestablish the physical caliphate, that remains a critical part of ISIS ideology. The pressure that we've been able to apply to ISIS in Syria, alongside our Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, partners up and down the Euphrates River Valley, and in Iraq, working with the ISF, we've been able to prevent ISIS from realizing its dreams of conducting external attacks. The years ahead will not be free of violence. Attacks may continue in the form of an insurgency, but our goal is to continue to develop and enable the ability of the ISF to contain and defeat ISIS without external assistance. And I believe we're on the correct path to that desired end state. From a global perspective, I firmly believe there will never be a time when ISIS or whatever follows ISIS is gonna be completely absent from the world stage. Even the brightest possible future will not be a bloodless future, but it can be a future in which local security forces are able to contain those extremist force, forces and groups without significant external help. There are other terrorist organizations that operate in the shadows and the ungoverned spaces in the region besides ISIS. There's an Al-Qaeda element out in Northwest Syria in the pocket around Idlib that also maintains an aspirational desire to generate external attacks. There are also VEO pockets, violent extremist organization pockets down in the Arabian Peninsula, which think globally and want to inspire action against us and our allies. In fact, the last actual attack against the United States was generated by Al-Qaeda coming out of the Arabian Peninsula, an, an entity we know as AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula. They are down now, but if we are unable to maintain constant pressure on them, they could achieve a resurgence. We look at these violent extremist organizations as falling into categories of increasing involvement. They either inspire action, enable action, or direct action. Today, they're relatively limited to inspiring action, typically via cyber radicalization of people around the world who then are motivated to go out and conduct lone wolf attacks. 
That's easier for the VEO, the violent extremist organization. It entails less risk and it's generally harder for us to stop. And while they would like to enable or direct attacks, these are more difficult and hold greater risk because the mechanisms for the transfer of funds, for the transfer and movement of people and things, all the things associated with that are easier for us to monitor, attribute, and sometimes interdict. But it remains a core aspirational goal of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and their respective offshoots to renew their connective tissue through the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, out into the Southwest Pacific, and into other areas. One of the key things we try to do in CENTCOM and in conjunction with the United States Special Operations Command and the Global Coalition is to try to prevent the reestablishment of that connective tissue. Again, we're not going to get to perfection on this. And I suspect no matter how active we are, there's always going to be potential for cyber radicalization, the inspiring action, if you will. While that will always remain a threat, what we want to focus on is preventing the organized enabling or detailed planning. Because when you're running for your life up and down the Euphrates River Valley, listening to the noise of an armed MQ-9 drone overhead, it's hard to think about conducting attack planning against Detroit. So we maintain strong, vigorous efforts against those terrorist organizations because we know they retain the aspiration to attack the United States and our allies. And it is only the result of direct, relentless pressure that prevents them the capability or opportunity to do that. Now, I can tell you that while maintaining that tactical military pressure is crucial, there is a larger strategic problem that cannot be addressed or solved by military means, and it requires the international community to solve. And that is the repatriation of foreign fighters and accounting for the internally displaced persons, IDPs, and refugees who remain at risk across the theater as an unfortunate byproduct of those conflicts. And the ambassador spoke very eloquently about that just a few moments ago. Today, across vast swaths of Syria and Iraq, the systemic indoctrination of IDP and refugee camp populations who are hostage to the receipt of ISIS ideology is an alarming development with potentially generational implications. Unless the international community finds a way to repatriate, reintegrate into home communities and support locally grown reconciliation programming of these people, many of whom have been living in challenging circumstances, displaced from their homes with little economic opportunity, we are buying ourselves a strategic problem 10 years down the road when these children grow up radicalized. If we don't address this now, we're never really going to defeat ISIS. The, it, the ideology will continue well into the next generation, and we're going to have to do this all over again. That's a prospect I'm not comfortable with. This is a hard problem, one that requires, requires cooperation among diplomatic, security, and humanitarian channels. There's no known successful methodology of de-radicalization for hardcore ISIS believers, at least not at scale. And this radicalized population currently numbers in the thousands and preys on the disenfranchised and weak IDP and refugee populations who are already highly susceptible to extremist indoctrination. The longer IDPs and refugees remain displaced, the more likely they are to be influenced by malign actors. While there is no security solution for de-radicalization, military and local security forces can help set the conditions for stability and security necessary for these populations to return to their home communities and begin the process of regaining power over their own lives. But the sheer number and humanitarian needs of IDPs and refugees 
presents a challenge to the timeline along which necessary levels of long-term stabilization can take root. For the radicalized populations, I believe that any sort of de-radicalization solution needs to be embedded in the culture. It can't be a Western solution. It needs to be a local solution supported by local governments, organizations, and communities from which the radicalized individuals come from. They're the best place to support and reintegrate individuals into, the, into these societies. One thing is clear. These are tough global problems that require global resources channeled toward regional and local solutions. These issues will not go away by ignoring them. They have to be addressed head on by the international community and we have to work together accepting our shared responsibilities. So I just wanted to spend a moment talking to you about two key issues and I've outlined them that we're working through right now at US Central Command. Stability in the Middle East by deterring Iran and addressing the threat of terrorism against the homeland and our allies. We know we don't have the answers to all these problems. And as we prosecute these missions, we remain thankful for the depth and breadth of our partnerships across the Middle East and, respect, and respectful of the contributions that all have made as we address these issues together. Thank you very much for allowing me to speak this morning. Thank you, General. Uh, as usual, you're able to cover a broad waterfront. Uh, many uh, who have served, many who are thinking of serving, uh, many uh, at the present time who are partners with you amongst the Allied Coalition, I look to you for guidance, for benefit, for focus, for emphasis, for priorities. And priorities, many would agree, are as important, if not more important than any other issue. If we have different priorities or conflicting ones or confusing ones, uh, the likelihood of uh, being effective or appropriate or adequate to the needs. And you have announced and pronounced our needs, our concerns, our interests, and you've emphasized that these are legitimate needs, legitimate concerns, uh, legitimate interests, and how these fuse into the focus of our foreign relations and our foreign policy goals, and how we handle these matters of concerns and needs and interests uh, will drive and determine much in terms of the quality of our response to the challenges and also not just the response, but the initiation, the innovation, uh, the creation of new ways to solve or resolve and address uh, ongoing uh, global systemic structural problems. We're fortunate to have someone like you in the command. We remember the days, if one is old enough, in the late uh, 1970s when the seeds of what you now uh, command uh, were called the Rapid Joint Deployment Force. And people used to make jokes that it was not so much rapid and its jointness was uh, not uh, evident uh, to everyone's sufficient needs, nor was it a force as such. It had to be cobbled together. There were no ribbons that people could wear on their uh, uniforms of uh, campaigns here, uh, mobilizations there, deployments here. Um, and so the early people involved in this and 
at the National Council. We've been involved with you and all of your predecessors, sir, uh, had an extraordinary challenge in, in front of them. Uh, but look what you've been able to achieve uh, working with our allies. We could not have done this alone. We nailed the last uh, nail in the coffin of the Red Army in Afghanistan, uh, working with and through the cooperative activities of uh, GCC country allies and Pakistan too, which is part of your, your red people need to be aware of that. And the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, with regard to uh, uh, putting uh, the American flag on vessels going the entire length of the Gulf up to Kuwait and back and in and out. Uh, and thirdly, that uh, we were able to reverse the Iraqi aggression of August the 2nd, 1990, and working with Russia in particular with its leaders, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who would have thought 40 years ago that we and the leaders of Moscow would have stood shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, hand in hand, 12 separate United Nations Security Council uh, resolutions that were not vetoed, uh, that showed a united geostrategic, geopolitical front and approach to this. And then what we've also done throughout to prevent the exportation or the advancement of Iran's revolution to the Western side of the Gulf. Uh, this has to be not just a nightmare for you and your colleagues, but a day, day mare, uh, as well, 24-7, uh, this challenge. But look what you've done. All of these governments are still intact. All of their government structures and systems remain in place as they were um, before you came onto the scene, during your time on the scene, and because of the effectiveness of your approaches and your training, your education, your, your efforts and energy, um, the situation is far, far better than anyone would have predicted before the US Central Command uh, began to first bud but it had to be like other things that are budding, it has to be nourished with water and nutrients. And then if you're lucky from that, one is able to bloom. And uh, I've given four examples of where we bloomed. And then if those are successful, together we're able to blossom. Uh, you are at the tip of the spear, sir. We couldn't have asked a finer person a more prepared, a more experienced, a more educated, uh, a more insightful, informative, analytical, knowledgeable, and understanding leader who wears the armed forces uniform, but you're also a citizen soldier and you practice the art of diplomacy simultaneous to the arts of war. Thank you, sir. And we look forward to our further cooperation uh, with the U.S. Central Command, which you have helped to secure and render possible for more than a quarter of a century now. We've been sending officers of your staff and those of your predecessors, primarily to Oman, because his late majesty, Sultan Qaboos, was a military man 
and a graduate of, of, of Sandhurst, and proudly so. Uh, and he was their first friend when the Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan. And we were looking for a partner, some partner, any partner who would help us to deter a phrase, a concept, a strategic notion that you've mentioned several times in, in your remark. And uh, the Soviet Union had to acknowledge defeat, had to withdraw, and its government changed profoundly through and with that cooperation with those under your, your command, sir. So we want to broaden these programs if possible to have them also in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Qatar in particular. Uh, these countries are also on your watch and are of enormous importance and are vastly misunderstood by the American public uh, writ large. Uh, but through your efforts, sir, uh, we're making progress and inshallah, we'll continue to register progress. Thank you, sir.